0: Second Samuel chapter seven. Second Samuel chapter seven. I've got a long introduction, but long, don't let the long introduction discourage you, because I have a short message. All right, I am going somewhere. I promise you. I know where I'm going. I just want you to go there with me. And uh, so, 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 just just give me uh, give me a little leeway tonight, and just kind of set this up, and then I'll. Uh, make application here as, as we go along. And the second Samuel chapter 7, I, I'm just going to jump right into the middle of a conversation and then we'll come back and we'll talk about the chapter. But verse number 12, this is the Lord speaking to David, or Nathan speaking to David, relaying a message from the Lord. When thy days be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him. As I took it from Saul, when I, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. When David became the king of Israel, there was a bit of a rocky start to it. The nation was divided. Not everybody accepted David as the new king, one of Saul's sons, Abner, was trying to install his own man as the king. Some of the tribes were following the man that Abner was, 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 was promoting. And so for the first seven years after the death of Saul, David was king really only over a portion of the kingdom. And finally, Abner was killed, and the Saul dynasty is finally over. The elders of all the other tribes, they come to Hebron. They anoint David. This is the third time that David is anointed and finally the kingdom is united under him. And in the chapter before this, chapter number six, if you were to go back and read that chapter, David had brought the ark of God back to Jerusalem so that worship in the nation could be prominent now. And so now we are at the beginning of the reign of David and it's prosperous times. It's going to be good times. And when a new administration comes in, they always come in with a lot of ideas and things that they want to do and programs that they want to implement. And so one of the things that David wanted to do is he wanted to build a temple for the Lord to replace the tabernacle. The tabernacle was how they'd worship the Lord in the wilderness wanderings, but they had not been nomadic people in the wilderness for a Long, long time. And David felt that a more permanent structure would be more suited for the Lord now that they were settled in the land. And it was not wrong in that. And in this chapter, David is going to express that desire to the Lord. And the Lord is going to respond to that request. Now, 2 Samuel chapter 7, I think, is probably the most important chapter in the life of David, though it's not the most exciting. And the reason why the chapter is important is because it is in this chapter that you read about a covenant that God made with David. And we read just a little part of it. And we call it the Davidic covenant. Now I know that you're familiar with dispensations. If you've sat in a dispensations class, then you're familiar with dispensations and covenants. And one of the most important words in your Bible is the word covenant. Right. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11, verse, verse 11, verse 12, I think it is, talks about how the, Israel is privileged to, to have some things that Gentiles don't have. And among those are the covenants of promise. Or Romans chapter 9, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law, the sacrifices. So God made covenants with Israel that he didn't make with, with, with the Gentiles. When I was in Bible college, we used to sing a little chorus that they would teach us. And the song said, every promise in the book is mine. Every chapter, every verse is line. Cute little song. Not exactly true. Because every promise in the book is not mine. There are some promises that are to Israel. If you don't understand it, you're going to mess up a lot, of, a lot of doctrine. So so what is a covenant? Why do they belong to Israel rather than Gentile nations. Well, the covenant speaks of a promise that God has made in this case, particularly to the nation of Israel. And these covenants are the very foundation of God's dealings with the nation of Israel. Everything that God has done and is going to do in the future with the nation of Israel is based upon what he covenanted that he would do with them. This is not covenant theology. That's a whole different deal. This is a study of covenants. And, and if you've ever studied covenants or whether you have, have not, it, it would be good to go back and just remind yourself of those major covenants. There's one in Genesis chapter 12 that, that God made to Abraham, and we'll not turn there, but you can write the reference down, and we call it the Abrahamic covenant. You're familiar with the Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 30, there's what I would call the Canaan covenant. You might be familiar with the Palestinian covenant. That's the name that's normally given for that covenant. However, the land of promise was never called Palestine in the Bible. It wasn't called Palestine until, I I, I forget when, but the Romans gave that land the name Palestine as a slight to the Jews. Palestine is Latin for Philistine. There is no covenant to the Philistines. So there's no Palestinian covenant. So, so I call it the Canaan covenant because it deals with the land. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where we're at tonight, you have what's called the Davidic covenant. And then when you get to Jeremiah chapter 31, you will have the new covenant. And if you go back and study them, you will find that the Abrahamic covenant is the seed plot. It's the base where all of the other covenants come from. So, so in the Abrahamic covenant, God promised Abraham a land, That's expanded in the Canaan covenant. He also promised Abraham a great seed, a great nation. That's expanded in the Davidic covenant. He also promised Abraham a great blessing. That's expanded in the the new covenant. Now in 2 Samuel chapter 7 we have the Davidic covenant. And I'll not read it again, but just look at verse number 16. Here's the crux of the promise, verse 16. Thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Now, Now notice, thine house, thy kingdom, thy throne. And the thrust of the covenant is basically this, that David would have a child who would succeed him and establish a dynasty with that kingdom. And the throne of David's dynasty would be established forever. The throne would not be taken away from Solomon, his son, even though his son would justify it, God would not take it away from him. So David's house, David's throne, David's kingdom would be established forever. We, we, don't, we, we don't think in terms of dynasties because we don't have a monarchy. Right. Queen Elizabeth that just passed away, I think died at 96 years old and, and now lying in state in Westminster Abbey in the funeral. On, on, and, and so we, we, we watch that, we get fascinated with it. And so I, I, because we were over there in May, my wife and I, and so I, I'm kind of interested in that. And don't know anything about the royal family, but but I got. I, I was asked, wondering the other day why do we not know the last name of the royal family? It's Queen Elizabeth, Prince William, now Char- King Charles. Don't they have a last name? And the British royalty is called after the male line, and it's always called a house, the House of, and the house survives until there is no male heir. And then a new dynasty is begun. So if you were to study British history, you would read about the House of Normandy, the House of Tudor, the House of of, of Stuart. And the dynasty, the house that Queen Elizabeth was born to, was called the House of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. That was the name of it. But that's a very German name. And in World War I, there was obvious anti-German sentiments in Great Britain. So Queen Elizabeth's grandfather, King George V, announced that they were dropping the German name. We're not going to be the Saxburg name anymore. We will become the House of Windsor. So Windsor is now the surname of the royal family. By the way, in 1947, Queen Elizabeth married her cousin, Philip. And instead of taking his name, She said, no, we're going to keep the name Windsor and all of our descendants will belong to the house of Windsor. That's the dynasty. That's going to be our name. Well, that helps me a little bit when I read verse number 16, thine house. It's speaking of David's posterity. It's not a physical structure that David lived in, but the descendants of David. This is the seed aspect of it. Thine house and then thy kingdom and thy throne, that your line will always be the royal line. The right to rule, rule will always belong to David's seed. Dynasties come and they crumble in the dust of history, but in the end, when the final kingdom is established over this earth... It will be a son of David that will sit on that throne. And of course, we know that that son is Jesus Christ who will sit on the throne of David during the millennial reign of Christ. And we believe that. In fact, hold your finger right here. Look at Psalm chapter 89. Psalm chapter 8 is just a little Bible study and then I'll preach for just a minute tonight. But look at Psalm 89 and it's all over the Bible. But Psalm 89 and verse 1, I will sing... Of the mercies of the Lord forever, with my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. For I have said mercy shall be built up forever. Thy faithfulness shalt thou establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David thy servant. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. See, look at verse number 34. My covenant will I not break. Nor alter the thing that's gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David, his seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven, Selah. All yeah. oh, those are great promises. In, in our, in our theological system, we sometimes use big words to identify the position that we take on certain doctrines. And in prophecy, we would say that we are pre-tribulational and premillennial. Now, premillennial simply means that we believe that the second coming has to take place before the millennial reign of Christ. And we believe that the millennial reign of Christ is a literal, physical, future event. In Revelation chapter 20, six times a thousand years, what that actually means in the Greek is it means a thousand years, all right? That's what that actually means, and we believe that. We believe that Jesus Christ is coming back, that he will establish the Davidic kingdom as the physical king, that he will reign from his throne in Jerusalem, he will rule over the nations, and that for a thousand years the covenant nation of Israel will enjoy the peace and prosperity that they have not enjoyed since the days of David and Solomon. But in order to believe that, then you have to believe that the promise in Second Samuel chapter 7 is a literal future covenant. And the reason I say that is because there are some religions that say that the church is the kingdom. That we are bringing in the spiritual kingdom right now. By the way, if we are, we're not doing a very good job at it, all right? And some say, well, the temporal aspects of the kingdom were fulfilled by Solomon. The eternal aspects are going to be fulfilled by the church. That the throne is not Jesus sitting over a literal kingdom and a literal throne, but Christ reigning over the church spiritually. And all of that I say, that's wrong. That's wrong. You've got to understand what is being promised in this chapter. And I will tell you where it's going to be fulfilled. Look at Luke chapter number 1. Luke chapter number one. And, and it, and it's striking how, how the, how the connection is made when you connect the dots. But Luke chapter number one and verse number, uh, verse number 30, verse number 31. And he says in Luke 1 and verse 31, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. He should be great. He should be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God, Shall give unto him, him unto him, the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And the end of his kingdom there shall be no end. There's the throne, there's the house, there's the kingdom. There's the fulfillment right there of 2 Samuel chapter number 7. Now I say all of that to say this is an important chapter. Because this chapter shapes my eschatology. This chapter influences what I believe about end-time events. I believe in the literal, physical reign of Jesus Christ because of the covenant that God makes with David in this chapter. And we could dig real deep tonight in these covenants and we could trace it all throughout the Bible. It'll be a wonderful study. But I want to show you something about God in here. It's not the doctrine so much I want to show you As something practical. It is not the promise that God made to him. But I want to show you the context in which God made that promise. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I want you to notice in verse 1, 2, and 3. That there is a desire that David expressed. Now don't forget what I've just told you how important this is. But look at verse number 1. It came to pass, when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. David is sitting in his luxurious palace and he's bothered by something. In the days of Moses, God had instructed Moses and the people to construct a tabernacle that would be the earthly dwelling place of God. And the tabernacle was a tent. It was not a permanent structure. It was intended to be put up, tore down, transported. It's nothing but bars and boards And animal skins. Every minute detail is spelled out by God, exactly how God wants us to be built. But if you've ever seen a picture of it, it was not a beautiful thing. It's not permanent. It's not beautiful. It's not luxurious. It is suited for wilderness wanderings, but Israel didn't wander in a wilderness anymore. They all had cities, they all had houses, they all had walled villages. And the king had a mansion, a palace, and the tabernacle, the, the place of God, the presence of God, it still resides in a tent. And even when, Jacob, when David had brought the ark back to Jerusalem, he had had a t- special tent structure built to house it temporarily, but it is still a tent. And David thought that something ought to be done about this. There ought to be something to honor God. And God should have a building that is worthy of him that we can come and worship him in. So in this chapter, David goes to Nathan the prophet and expresses his desire to Nathan. Hey, this is what I'm thinking. And Nathan the prophet listens to it. And Nathan the prophet says, that sounds like a good idea. David said, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. I just think that God ought to have a better house. I don't think that my house ought to be nicer than God's house. I just don't think it's right that I live in the lap of luxury, but the church has so many needs. And, and by the way, you're building a building. I believe you ought to make it as nice as you possibly can. This is where you're going to worship God. I, I think it ought to be nice. And you ought to take pride in what God has given us and be good stewards. And, and, and he's bothered. He's bothered by this. Now, i tell you, it, it is a good desire There is nothing wrong with what David feels in his heart. There's no selfishness. There's no ulterior motive. It is a good thing. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 6, it says, It was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, watch this, For as much as it was in thine heart to build a house for my name, thou didst dwell... That it was in thine heart. That's a good thing that you want. And it was a gracious desire. Because in this chapter, David doesn't ask the Lord for anything. The only thing he wants... Is he wants to give something back to God, not receive something from God. He's not expecting anything in return for the temple. I'm not doing this hoping that God will bless me. I just want to do something for God. And I think, by the way, that we ought to check our motives when we give. Because how many times have we said, boy, if you'll give, God will bless and give back to you. Well, what if he doesn't? would you still give? Huh? I mean, what if you gave the faith promise for a year and and at the end of the year, God just said, thank you. Huh? You didn't get a raise. You didn't get a promotion. Huh? Would that be okay? Because if we're not careful, we're going to be the same as the religious hucksters on TBN. Right? Maybe sometimes you just give because God has given so much and I'm just trying to catch up. He's not asking for anything back. So so the story opens. David's sitting in his palace. He's bothered that he has a nicer house than God. And I want to do something to bring glory to God. Not a selfish desire. Not a sinful desire. It's a good desire. And have you ever come to God with a good desire? You ever prayed for something that wasn't selfish? You ever had a desire in your heart That you wanted to do something for God. And it was a good thing. And it was a gracious thing. It's just a good desire. Maybe it's a young couple that surrenders their life to go to the mission field. Or a preacher that surrenders to preach. Or a young lady that desires a godly husband. Or a young wife that's desiring children. It is a good desire. Ain't nothing wrong with it. There, there, There is the desire that David expresses. But then I want you to see the denial that David experienced. Look at verse 4. It came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I, uh, uh, spake I a sword or word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, Say, Why, build ye me not an house of cedar? Here's what he said. I ain't never asked somebody to build me a house. I've never asked for this before. He says in verse number 8, Now therefore, so shall thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more, as before times... And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies. Also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee in house. And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy father. When you are dead I'll set up thy seat after thee. Which shall proceed out of thy bowels. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Can I interpret all of that for you? No. That's what God just said. Right. David tells his dream to the prophet Nathan. Nathan thinks it's a good idea, encourages him in it. That night, God comes to him and says, You go back to David and you tell him, you tell him, I am not going to let him build my house. Yeah. Thanks, but no thanks. Right. I'm going to have a house. We're going to have a house. But it's not him. It's going to be Solomon that builds it. Now God doesn't rebuke David. He doesn't tell David that you're wrong in what you wanted. He doesn't say this was a boneheaded idea. Here's what he says. It's not my plan. It's a good plan. But it's not the best plan. Because I have a better plan. Now for 1 Chronicles chapter 22. You'll have to just look at it on your own. I find out why God didn't allow David to build the temple. He's allowed to draw the blueprints for it. He's allowed to lay aside all the materials and the money for it. Isn't that an amazing thing that he paid for somebody to build a church he would never worship in? Huh? Yeah. You get to pay to build it, but it's going to be somebody else that worships me in it. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, basically the idea is because you have so much blood on your hands, you've been a man of war, and because of that, I'm not going to have you build the house. I'm going to have Solomon build the house. Now, I'll be honest with you, I've never been able to make the connection as to why of that reason. I've never tied that together, but that is the reason that God gave him. You have a good desire It's a gracious desire. There's no hidden motive behind it. You're not trying to manipulate God. It's a good desire. But God says no. And there's probably people sitting here tonight. And you've heard God say no. There was nothing wrong with the desire. There was no selfishness behind your motives. A good godly desire. That you prayed for and you prayed for and you prayed for and you always heard that God always answers prayer. And it's either yes, no, or wait. And all that you're getting is wait and no. And for some reason, for some reason, God has taken this great desire that maybe he's even put into your heart and God has said no. Men who have surrendered to preach and desired to be in full-time ministry and God said a young lady that came to the altar and surrendered her life to be a missionary but years have passed and God has said no. And the reality is that everything we pray for doesn't happen. Sometimes God heals and sometimes he doesn't. And sometimes God gives more than enough finances and sometimes we just barely get by. Sometimes we get the job that we want and sometimes we don't. He prays, this is in my heart. I just want to do something for God and God says no. Here's what I want you to get. When God says no, he doesn't just say no. The verse that I read to you, the Davidic covenant it is in the context of God saying no it is as God is saying no to one request that God is promising David something even greater one of the greatest promises in the Bible one of the greatest covenants in the Bible is in the context of God saying no to a prayer God said no, because He had a greater yes in mind. Look at it. Look at look at verse number eight. Now, therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David: Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcoats, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel have is with thee whatsoever thou wentest, have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, likened to the name of the great men that are in the earth. Instead of David giving something to, do to the Lord, the Lord gave something to thee. I chose you when you were out there tending sheep on the backside of the desert, and I've made you a great name. He says in verse number 11, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord that I love this, also the Lord telleth that he will make thee in house. Instead of you building me a house, I'm going to build you a house. says in verse number 16, he says, Thine house, thy kingdom, shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Do you not see that the plan that was in God's mind was much bigger than the plan that was in David's mind? David, you want to build me a house? Actually, I'm going to build you a house. Because if you build me a house, it's only going to stand for a couple hundred years but the house that I'm going to build you it is going to stand for all of eternity. I got a better plan. David, you got a good plan. Thank you for the plan. But my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. I've got a better plan. No is never easy. I don't ever understand no. I don't like to hear no. But no is sure a whole lot easier if you know that God is planning a greater yes down the road. Some of you have had good plans. That never happened. And you saw God alter your life in ways that you never could have wished for. And we're all human. And sometimes we're disappointed in how the situation turns out. And you could be consumed with what God has not done for you. It might be better to focus on what God is doing. You may not have all that you want out of life you do have all that God wants you to have out of life. You may hear God say no. But it's not just no. There's a desire that David expressed. There's a denial that David experienced. But I want you to notice a devotion that David exhibited. Look at verse number 18. Bear in mind what he's just heard. Then went King David in and sat before the Lord and he said... Who am I? O oh, Lord God, what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? And this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O oh God. But thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And as this the matter of man, O oh Lord God, and what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. For thy word's sake, and according to thine own heart, hast thou done all these great things to make thy servant know them. Wherefore, thou art great, O Lord God. There is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee. According to all that we've heard with our ears, and what one nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel? And God went to redeem for a people to himself and to make him a name, and to do for you great things and terrible for thy land before thy people, which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nation and from thy gods, for thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people, the Israel, to be a people unto thee forever, and thou, Lord, art become their God. Do you see the praise and the adoration? What he is doing. He is now praying back to God after God has just said no to a prayer that he greatly wanted, and this is his response to no it is praise, it is adoration. It is worship, it is glory, it is honor, it is blessing. He doesn't complain, he doesn't get angry, he doesn't lash out, he doesn't accuse God of being unfair, he doesn't say God's not doing me right, even though I don't get my way in this matter, I'm willing to trust God even in the nose. And what you have to be able to do is you have to be able to trust the sovereignty of God. My dad, whom you know, just turned 80 just a few weeks ago my dad would prefer that nobody would even notice. He turned 80, but all the family, we had a little birthday party in the church, fellowship hall, and all the kids come in. We had dinner and, and opened up some gifts. And when it was over, when it was over, dad sitting at the head of the table got everybody's attention and dad just started talking. And he just started reminiscing about the past, went all the way back to when he got saved and grew up in West Virginia. And. And talked about some of the things that we have been through. And he talked about the sovereign of God that puts us where we are right now. And, And when I look back on my life, I can tell you that there are three definite times in my life where I prayed for something very specific, very earnestly, and God said no. Three times when I had the course laid out. Three times when I had the plan already set. Three times when I knew what the blueprint should be. And three times God totally disrupted it. And at the time, I didn't understand Now, And at the time, my heart was not always pure before God. This is not what I asked for. This is not what I planned. This is not fair. But I look back on it now, and I see that God could see farther down the road than I could. And I see—I didn't see then. I see now that when God said no at those three stations of life, He already had a yes in place. And you have to get to the place where you can praise Him in the yes and didn't know. In April 1912, there was a family by the name of Clark family living in Scotland. Husband, wife, nine children. The Clark family had one dream, that was to migrate to the United States of America, the land of opportunity. Thousands of people were coming to America, the land of opportunity. The Clarks wanted to be among them, start a new life, make money, have a great job. So for many, many months, in fact, over a year, the Clark family sold everything that they had, saved all the money that they could, got all the paperwork in place to move their entire family to America and begin their new life. And Mr. Clark heard about a ship that was making its maiden voyage from England to the United States. and They purchased the tickets, the fare. They were so excited. His whole family going to be on the ship, and they are going to America. In one week before they were to leave Scotland, their 12-year-old boy was bitten by a dog. And the bite wasn't serious. But The doctor came, made a house visit, stitched the boy up and said everything is fine. However, it just so happened at that, that particular time in that area of Scotland, there was a major outbreak of rabies. They don't believe that the dog had rabies. They didn't think the boy had rabies. However, the community had a two-week mandatory quarantine for any bite, trying to stop it. One week before they leave, we have planned over a year to get to America. And one week before, the little 12-year-old boy is placed in a two-week mandatory quarantine. And Mr. Clark said, I can't sell without him. And I can't sell with him. And like that, everything that they have worked for for a year has gone down the tubes. It's over. And Mr. Clark got angry with God. He said, God, it's not fair. The sacrifices my family has made, the things that my family has sold, the money that we have done, the things that we have done without, and all we wanted to do was to make this one trip to America and start this new life over. And now a dog bite ends all of our dreams. It is not fair. But on April 16th, 1912, Mr. Clark woke up and he found out why God said no. It was on that day the whole world received the news that a ship, maiden ship, they said unsinkable. Somewhere out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, the Titanic struck an iceberg. And that night, 1,500 people lost their lives in the icy waters of the Atlantic. And Mr. Clark's family was not part of that. Yeah. Amen. Because one week earlier, God had said no.